Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about San Francisco cultivating moral and economic idiocy, uh, U.S. drowning in lies, pretends, and wokeness, January 6th, more uniparty treachery unmasked, and presidential positioning, Pence and DeSantis. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I called this First Five, I forget what the title I called, yeah, but um, I'm talking about what's happening in San Francisco. San Francisco cultivating moral economic idiocy. And I want to tell you a proposal that was made in San Francisco. And you might think I'm exaggerating, um, but I'm not. I want to just tell you what the um, petition was made to the city of San Francisco by a group of citizens. And these citizens had banded together for two years. They had met for two years to come up with their proposal regarding reparations. They're talking about what they want to propose to the city of San Francisco um, as a reparation, a serious reparations proposal. So what they're proposing is that the city of San Francisco should pay everyone determined eligible for reparations. And I'll tell you in a moment what those qualifications are. Everyone entitled, with a very straight face, very serious, everyone who is viewed to be entitled to reparations should get $5 million, all personal debt they have of any kind eliminated, provided for a, an annual income of $97,000, annual income for 250 years, not kidding, and a, um, be able to purchase a home, a home in San Francisco for $1. And as they lay out those, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the microphone close enough. What, do I need to redo it? Okay, I'm okay. Anyway, sorry folks. We've been shuffling, I've been doing different things in the studio today and I didn't move the microphone, sorry. So if you, I'm gonna quickly tell you again. In San Francisco, there was a um, petition made by a group, went to the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco. Uh, this is a proposal worked on for the last two years and it involves reparations. And the basic demand of this group was that if a person is to be is determined eligible for reparations in San Francisco, they should be entitled to each individual a $5 million payment, a $97,000 annual income for the next 250 years, so obviously the things go on to the children and grandchildren, um, all personal debt eliminated, so whatever debt they have, um, and should be able to buy a home in San Francisco for $1. And the reason I'm talking about this today, I mean, the absurdity of these demands are just so patently obvious that it almost seems like you would, I would you know, tell this story and everyone eye roll and move on to the next thing. But I really wanna talk about is how in the world do we get to the place in America where there would be a serious presentation made to the Board of Supervisors, the, you know, it's like the city council, 
And this is a group that worked on this proposal for two years. They worked out all the demands, all the qualifications, who gets to get repar reparations, and with a completely straight face said to the city of San Francisco, this is what we think everyone eligible for reparations should receive. And what I want to say about it is, because I think this really matters, this isn't just the lunacy of San Francisco. It is lunatic. I mean, it's just completely absurd. Let me add to that absurdity to point out that no one on the Board of Supervisors after this presentation came up with a, wow, that's pretty crazy, you know, that's absurd. In fact, most of the comments by the Board of Supervisors afterward were kind of nodding along, saying, well, you know, it's very reasonable what you're asking. It seems reasonable, but, you know, we'll see if we can afford it. We'll take a look. They did not just say, are you out of your minds, which they clearly are. But the deeper point I want to make is this kind of mindset that would cause a group of apparently otherwise sane people to believe it is rational to show up at city council in San Francisco to demand that all of a certain group whose characteristics they get to describe and name, all those people should be entitled, entitled to be paid $5 million plus all the things I just mentioned, a $97,000 income for uh, the next 250 years. So it clearly goes on to your children and grandchildren. This is a result of this mindset of cultural Marxism. That's, what, that's why this is happening. The idea of cultural Marxism is to convince people that you are a disadvantaged class, that you are a victim, that you must be alienated from, hateful, uh, hateful toward, suspicious of, resentful toward your fellow citizens, and that somehow you are wronged because of things that happened 200 plus years ago, and that because you're wronged, and because it was slavery in America, uh, in, you know, that which ended obviously a long time ago, 150 plus years ago, that you should be entitled to this money, no one rational would come up with this demand. No one sensible, no one educated, no one using actual common sense. This is not a normal way to think. This is a, this is a mindset cultivated by the left in this country really for decades. They don't really try to um, create the Marxism, the division of America along the lines of just economics and say, you know, you got the working class, you got the, the wealthy and it's unfair, we got to make it fair. They have, in, they have just used the issue of race to divide America and instill in the hearts and minds of people the idea that they're somehow entitled to have the city take away other people's money, because that's the only way cities or any government entity has any money, take away other people's money and give it to them because they want it. And it is this, this cultural Marxism is a cancer on the culture and fabric of America. Cultural Marxism, this endless determination to divide a society along some lines, in this case is along the lines of race, and then pit people in society against each other. And these people did not appear to understand that what they were proposing was ludicrous. And you know, I'll tell you, I have a good friend who lives in, San, who lives in California, not in San Francisco. And other times when really crazy ideas come up and they are being discussed in San Francisco, and she'll say, <clears throat> you know, um, I'll say, well, certainly the voters aren't going to go for that. Certainly the legislature is not going to do that. And she, she always says, yes, they will. Yes, they will. It doesn't matter how crazy, how irrational the idea, if it's a left-wing idea, 
it will somehow become the policy in California. So these people listed the uh, qualifications uh, to, to get this all of this incredible largesse, uh, $5 million each person, et cetera. And so you only have to find be uh, two of these. You have, only have to have two of these qualifications. Um, you do have to be identified. In fact, it doesn't even say you have to be black or African-American. You have to identify as black or African-American on public documents um, for the last 10 years, you have to be at least 18. So you, if you had been born in San Francisco, a certain range of years, um, 1940 through 1996, if you were born in those years, or you migrated to San Francisco in certain years, uh, you are personally or the direct descendant of someone incarcerated by the failed war on drugs. So if you have anyone in your family who went to prison uh, on the war on drugs, then you, that's one, you've met one of the two criteria. Um, you have to have attended the public schools of San Francisco um, at, at a various point. Uh, you, can, you have to prove maybe you were, if you can prove you're a descendant of someone enslaved in the United States before 1865. I mean, there's a whole list of things. Um, or you're a member of a historically marginalized group that experienced lending discrimination. Lending discrimination in San Francisco. My point in raising this in the first five is we're living in a culture of, and I, I will be talking about most of the rest of the show, this culture of just living in fantasy world, living under lies, living and 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 living in, in just irrationality or moral lunacy, moral idiocy. I, I mean, this is this idea, number one, that anyone in America today should be able to force the government to collect taxes from other people and give that money to them because we had slavery in America that ended in 1865. In fact, I wanna tell you something I looked up today. You know, slavery ended essentially after the Civil War and by 1868, the um, 14th Amendment was in place and it basically assured that black Americans um, had the right to vote. And I know there were, I mean, the Democrat run South. I know there were all sorts of ways that the uh, Democrat Party in running the South tried to prevent black Americans from voting. And so all sorts of other things came along to protect that. But I'm making the comparison. So blacks in America have had the right to vote and therefore impact society, impact policy, impact who gets elected since 1868. You know, women in America, we didn't get the right to vote until 1920. Did you realize that? So many decades went by when black Americans could vote, but women could not, not until 1920. And in fact, in America, it was as late as 1974 when some states finally changed the law and allowed women the right to open their own bank accounts without their husband, to own a business without their husband, to enter a contract. Literally, the states had very different laws, but some states did not even allow women to own property until 1974, which is, you know, fairly recent in the grand scheme. But we have, through this cultural Marxism, uh, cancer on American society, convinced a certain group of people that if you meet the criteria that they get to write up, that you're just entitled to a massive transfer of wealth and ongoing dependency on the government for 250 years, starting now. I mean, the idea is lunatic, I, and only because it's California, I, I don't really want to say, well, that'll never happen, because I don't know what'll happen. But I do think it's really important to keep this in mind. These things, these kinds of, of act, demands, these kinds of activities, 
of uh, attaching what I just described to you as the demand for reparations in San Francisco. This is not happening in the abstract. This is not happening, didn't just happen to develop in San Francisco out of the you know, reasonable thinking of people. This is orchestrated division of America, orchestrated chaos. It is intended by the people orchestrating this to create chaos and resentment and division and cultural crumbling. There are the people who orchestrate it, the, the people who are the, you know, the ideologues, the, the communist ideology, have communist ideology, and the ones who come up with a plotting and planning. And, you know, that's one group. It's the plotters and planners of this Marxist takedown of America. And then there are many people sucked in the, to use Lenin's term, useful idiots, who actually think that America should have to compensate them who were never enslaved by taking tax dollars away from people who were never slave owners and provide essentially for them in perpetuity for generations to come. There is no rationality of any kind. Leave aside the utter absurdity that's affordable, because of course it's not affordable, except the way we spend money, maybe it is. But the point is, this is not happening naturally. This is, a, this is an outrageous assault on the idea of America, and it really is the people pushing this. They are the product of the education system that would tell them this is a reasonable demand to make. But at its core, and the reason it's so bad, and why there needs to be just a massive pushback, I don't know what San Francisco will say, but a massive pushback by the citizens of this country, just to say, we are not allowing this cultural Marxism to divide us any further. We're not going to agree to your self-designation of the people seeking reparations, saying we are, we are self-designated ourselves as victims, and we are victims for life, and nothing can ever get, out of, get us out of this. We're not going to tolerate that. We're not going to humor that. I'll tell you something else. These people who spent two years coming up with this massive proposal, think of what they could have been doing with all their volunteer time. They had two years to sit around and think up all the ways they, reasons and justifications and provisions to allow them to be just given free things the rest of their lives. Think what they could have been doing in the city of San Francisco, which is such a complete mess. They could have organized neighborhoods, say, block by block, we're going to clean up San Francisco. We have drugs, uh, you know, we have needles on the ground, we have human feces, we have the, it's a pigsty in many sections of San Francisco. What if these people, instead of sitting around in gripe sessions, deciding what to demand, had instead organized groups within each block of San Francisco and said, let's clean up our neighborhoods, let's clean up the empty lots, let's clean up the sidewalks, let's, let's really beautify San Francisco. Or they could have decided they're going to engage in the effort to help students who are struggling in school. The students who are attending public schools there, they probably spend half their time discussing idiotic social justice issues instead of learning anything they can use in life. These people, instead of coming up with a reparations demand, could have instead spent time organizing a mentoring program, even if 25 mentoring programs already exist in San Francisco. They could have organized a mentoring program to help people, help students in elementary, junior, and high school if they need help, whether it's in English or math or chemistry, whatever the subject is, organize mentoring, help these kids get through school, help these kids graduate. They could have created community centers or volunteer 
volunteered at community centers to urge kids to get off the streets and come into community centers and be part of something bigger. There are literally an unlimited number of ideas of good causes all these people could have spent their time doing in San Francisco instead of sitting around making a laundry list of complaints and demands and an absurd idea that the city of San Francisco, which doesn't really mean the city, it means the citizens who actually work for a living and businesses who actually function and produce products or services. What they could have done instead of all of the big list of demands against those people is to have added value to their community. In fact, improve the plight of the lives, the very same people's lives, whom they are now saying the only solution, the only way out, the only fairness is to basically give me all your money. An outrageous demand. It would great, be great to hear individuals in San Francisco and the government there and the state of California dismissing this as utter absurdity, period, full stop. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. So um, I, you know, I have this. I read all these stories at home, and I will tell you, my husband, um, you know, we enjoy talking politics. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of things, the politics, a lot of times, and we also we're often struck by the idea that we are just drowning in our country in just this cascade of lies, just drowning in lies, drowning in stories that are just, um, you know, preposterous, absurd, and and we. We don't even have political discussions in this country around the actual issue being um, being th that's on the table. Like I talked about, I think yesterday or a couple of days ago, about the strategic uh, petroleum reserve. You know, the oil we supposed to have in our country for emergencies, and how it's been basically depleted by Biden. And, and dangerously depleted. And so we have a hearing on Capitol Hill to talk about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and how we're going to you know, fix it, what we can do about it. And instead of um, having the hearing go down the lines of well, how much should be in the preserve, how much should we spend, how fast should we refill it, should we make standards for its use in the future, we had to have a lecture uh, by one of a, a, a Democrat Socialist member of Congress who wanted to talk only about how anyone who doesn't believe in climate change is a racist. I mean, that was, we were in the these absurd situations. We don't even discuss the real issues. And we are constantly on the side of, forget even calling it right, left, or Democrat, Republican, people who are sane and deal in facts, and people who indulge the absurdities and lunacy of so much of the concoctions of the leftist mindset. And we, we're not even getting to a discussion with the issues squarely on the table and everyone weighing in. So I'm going to just talk about just a few of those. So just to start with, there was a, um, a, a thing that happened here in um, the great state of Texas. Uh, as you likely know, we, we um, have a very lengthy border uh, between Texas and Mexico. And there was a, a large group of about a thousand of military age men a few women and children, but mostly military-age men who attempted to overrun the border at, at the border uh, gate at El Paso over this past weekend. And so I have a little clip. We have, yeah, Amelia has it. We play a little clip for you to show you that what happened. There's just a short clip.
Okay. That was at the, in, in Texas, that was at the Texas border. And you can see the people who are just trying to storm the border. And there are a few other images from that episode that I think we can quickly kind of scroll, scroll through. You want to just run one? Okay, hold on there. So what finally happened was the border patrol put up, but you can see that kind of shiny, that is uh, wire that, you know, with um, really sharp things on the wire. Um, that is a, um, you know, that's one step that the Border Patrol took. They just said, we cannot control. I know you, uh, my radio listeners, you can't uh, see this image, but uh, it's a bunch of people who are, you, uh, you know, young men mostly, a few with children, a few women, uh, trying to force their way through the border. And part of what the American Border Patrol had to do was to put up a barbed wire structure so that to prevent them just forcing their way into America. Let's hit the next picture. And I'll tell you for radio listeners, another picture of this. This is literally barbed wire like you would see outside of a prison. This is at the American border with Mexico in El Paso. And you can see the uh, American troops are lined up. In fact, uh, Mexico participated in trying to help America stop this uh, onslaught, stop this entourage. But that's, that's that picture. And there's another one, the next one we have. And so you can see the police are having to, to protect themselves from this, I mean, literally mob of people who are acting like they entitled to come here and they're outraged that someone would dare to point out we have a border. So those people are pushing. And so you, what's in the picture, there's are, are several police officers. They're having to use those uh, those uh, clear plastic, large, um, I don't even know what you call them, but the uh, clear plastic, you know, protects the officer's face and upper body because the people are um, otherwise, they're afraid of being assaulted um, by their own, by these people who are uh, crossing the border. Is there another one, I think? Yeah. Okay. I think this might be the last one. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so again, you can see this is an individual who is insisting on the right to cross the border and literally wanting to force his way in and only because the American troops are strong and armed saying, no, you can't come in here. And uh, this is, uh, and Mark, okay, we can come back to me. And so in this parade of lies, if I, I, I think I call this segment, we're drowning in lies, pretense, and wokeness. That picture of the border, this happens in America and in the Texas border especially, because it's the longest border, uh, you know, California and Arizona have borders too, but not quite like Texas. And, and New Mexico had a little piece of it too. What you're seeing there is not just because poverty has increased in Central and South America, and these people are so desperate they want to come here. They are pushing over the border forcibly because, again, of the mindset and the actions of the leftists in this country who are trying to destroy the country. Back under the era of Obama and Biden, Obama sent many messages to Central America, not openly, obviously, but many messages, we've, uh, and many commentators have pointed this out, encouraging people, come on up, it'll be okay, come on up, we'll accept you. You know, and it was only when, so, you know, you had the Biden I mean, the Obama-Biden years, and then only because President Trump came along in 2016 and began talking about the border was the first time many people realized, wow, I didn't realize the border had gotten so bad that the southern border of America is intentionally, basically, for all intents and purposes, not enforced. And so Trump came along, he made the border an issue, and for the first time, many Americans realized, shoot, our government doesn't enforce our border. And so, of course, you know, when Biden... Um, 
Biden, he did not win the election in 2020. When Biden became president in 2021, among his very first actions were to essentially repeal pretty much everything Trump did to try to put the border, border security back in place. So now we're at the point where in 2023, the southern border is overrun. These people mostly got stopped, but we are now in the millions of people who've entered America through our southern border, which we cannot get the federal government to enforce. We don't know where they all are, and we know many of them Obviously, they go right to sanctuary cities where they aren't going to be turned in, and they are a, you know, in the scary level scenario, a waiting army. They're people who have no right to be here. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. We don't know their agenda. And I know the left tries to dismiss all this as well. You know, there's probably just women and children. Yeah, there are a few of those. But we have been allowing into our country too many in the millions of young military-age men who do not follow our laws, honor our laws at all, and show up. And yet you have, living this world of wokeness and lies, you literally have the Biden administration, the president himself, as well as Mayorkas, DHS, openly look you right in the face in the camera and say, the border's secure. The border's secure. Biden went down there. They had photo op already. Everybody's pushed. All the people living in the streets are pushed aside. And, oh, yeah, border's secure. looks good to me. Mm -hmm. And this is what, what I'm trying to get at because it's so important to understand. These are intentional lies to the American people. This is not a difference of opinion about whether asylum policy should include some new criteria on which we will grant asylum. It's not that kind of discussion. There's no discussion based on facts about the border. The left won't enforce the border, and they know it, and we know it, and the border agents know it, and yet nothing changes. They just don't enforce the border. And so we, we're living in this world of lies and pretend and wokeness. I'll turn to another one. I have a series of these that are about wokeness and, and particularly relating to transgender, uh, the transgender issues. Um, and so I'll just tell you, there's one story came out of Stanford and I really, I, I, you know, read quite a few different articles about it to get the flavor. So the short story is, so Stanford University um, has a law school, obviously, um, and they helped, um, and they invited, there was a Federalist Society group of students there, which is a conservative people who actually believe in government and, and America, uh, they had invited a speaker to come. Uh, and the speaker was a, uh, a, a federal judge. He's actually a Fifth Circuit judge. He's a federal court of appeals judge named Stuart Duncan. And Stuart Kyle Duncan, I think he goes by Kyle, Stuart Kyle Duncan, he is a um, federal uh, fifth, fifth Court Circuit of Appeals judge. So he's invited to speak at Stanford. And so he shows up at Stanford to give the speech, and it wasn't just for the Federalist Society, everyone's invited, and so he really, literally couldn't give his speech because the students were yelling and screaming, jumping up and down, disrupting, uh, and, and yelling foul things at him uh, because they don't like him, because he's a conservative judge. Well, I dug in to find out the most recent thing, the main thing they were griping about, and it has to do with this. This uh, Fifth Circuit uh, court of Appeals, federal court judge, was uh, had come before him um, an issue that relates to a guy uh, who is in prison. Uh, he has a long history. He's a, uh, he's a registered sex offender. Um, he has a long history of uh, charges of sexual assault, various other sexual uh, conduct, um, and he was finally arrested for uh, possession of large amounts of um, pornographic material child pornographic material. I mean, the guy is just flat out creep, sexual assaulter of women. I mean, just, you know, he's a registered sex offender. 
So the guy uh, finally gets, goes to prison, he's in prison, and he made a petition while he's in prison that he decided he's a woman. So he wants uh, the courts to change everything in their records to reflect that even though his name is really Norman Keith Varner, V-A-R-N-E-R, -E he now wants to be Catherine Nicole Jett. And so uh, the issue eventually came before this judge who is then speaking at Stanford. And the judge basically just said, no. I mean, he gave a more reasoned thing. We don't, there's no, uh, there's no basis to compel the court to change uh, your designation of your gender um, in, our, in our court records, in our prison records. We don't have to change you, uh, your gender to what you're now saying, uh, saying that you are. And the guy uh, who's now saying he's a girl, uh, Catherine Nicole Jett, has issued statements that he is, you know, he's just so hurt and so offended. Why can't you respect me for who I am? Putting statements out like that. Why can't you respect me for who I am? And so the Stanford students are taking the side of the LGBTQ activists who are pushing the idea that because he's in prison, for a long time for a series of sexual offenses culminating in this arrest and prosecution and conviction related to um, child porn, I mean, just grotesque stuff. This is their issue. This is why the Stanford students were so upset that they had to interrupt his presentation. And, you know, I'm gonna quickly jump in and say for our radio listeners, I'm so grateful to Brighton Radio for carrying this show. For our radio listeners, you're gonna go off on a break at 30 minutes past, past the hour, coming right up. I'll be right here. If everything about this show, you can find our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. But during the three minutes you're off on your break, I'll be right here. Stay tuned, come back. Do not miss the rest of the show. I have lots of more good stuff planned. Okay, so back to this guy. So he's this uh, guy in jail who wants to be a girl. Um, he's, his demand uh, was not honored by this judge who said, no, we're not gonna do that. And so this is what the students at Stanford are upset about. And this is, again, we live in this world of lunacy, of constructed foolishness, of just moral idiocy, moral lunacy. They, you know, if they want to have a discussion, like you get, I mean, all of these talks, they always have a Q&A. Someone could raise their hand and say, hey, Judge uh, Duncan, why don't you, why is it so hard for you? Why couldn't you let uh, Norman Keith Varner uh, have his name changed to Catherine Nicole Jett in the court records and the prison records? Why couldn't you do that? And he can say whatever he thinks, whatever his reasons are, and they can say what they think. This is called intelligent adult conversation. This is, you know, nobility of Western civilization, robust debate of ideas. But this is what the left has been reduced to. And again, it's cultural Marxism. It's a mindset that tells them you don't ever discuss anything. You don't have to present facts. You don't have to present reasoning. You don't have to think. You don't have to listen to how the other side thinks. You don't have to process anything. You get loaded for bear. You're told you're supposed to be angry because uh, uh, Norman wants to be Catherine and be treated as a woman. And, and so he's, in the words of many on the left, he's tormenting a trans woman. That's how it was actually written up in one of the uh, left wing, The Nation wrote up, that he was tormenting a trans woman by not letting this guy change his name. And I, you know, I, I don't, this show isn't really today about the whole transgender issue. Um, but I will say, I think it's really important to, to kind of recognize or, or cause yourself to think about a little bit for every, you know, for everyone listening, for most of our lives, 
The whole transgender issue is something you kind of knew there's a small number of people who really wanted to change gender. They were born with a bottle, they're born a guy and they want to be a woman or vice versa. I mean, the concept is not new. But everyone recognized it was an extremely tiny element of society and you recognize that the person probably has problems. I mean, you didn't treat it as because they are a guy, but they say they're a woman. You didn't say, okay, then he is a woman or she is a woman. You're, it was a guy who wants to be a woman. And you know, this has happened. And, but right now, this whole issue has so clobbered Americans' culture and society and thinking that you have a bunch of students smart enough to get into Stanford Law School. And now, I don't know what that means, but you know, smart enough to get the grades and get the LSAT scores to get into Stanford Law School. And they think this is worthy of outrage. I don't know if they're outraged about the people who were victimized by this guy. You know, he it was, had previously been arrested for sexual assault. I don't know if they're outraged by the children portrayed in the child sex pornography that he was trafficking in. I don't know if those people, if those children whose lives are being utterly destroyed and endangered by him, I don't know if that bothers them. But the only thing that wires them up is this, is that this, is that this, he wouldn't let, you know, uh, what's his name again, Norman become Catherine. So, I, I mean, it's a measure of just, I want to, you can't even think of clear enough words, of moral idiocy. This is what triggers them. And then on top of that, the Stanford story, so the, uh, the uh, official at Stanford who's uh, DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, blah, blah, uh, title, whatever her title was, uh, she jumped in to say, and, and he thought, oh, she's going to quiet down the crowd because she gets up there and, and she says a few things about, well, you know, we really, this isn't how we do things. And then she turns and gives a 10 minute lecture to this judge about how he shouldn't, uh, how he really is guilty of, and he, his, his actions that are causing these students to act that way. I mean, she's defending the students essentially, and the judge ended up, I mean, they, they, they had words and he leaves. And then just to finish up playing out how this all went down at Stanford. So then the school finally, uh, the president of Stanford um, named Mark Tessier-Levine and the Stanford Law School Dean named Jenny Mar Martinez sent a letter of apology to him. And they basically said, you know, uh, dear judge Duncan, we, you know, this isn't how we do things we're, and we're sorry for the actions. And they even kind of apologized for the actions of this one DEI official at Stanford, who instead of jumping in to tell the students to behave or leave, jumped in to pile on the scolding of the judge because he didn't do whatever this transgender uh, guy, woman, uh, said that he should do. So they write this letter. It was pretty good for Stanford. It was pretty, you know, they said that we shouldn't have treated you this way. We're really, really sorry. So then the Dean Jenny Martinez, as she, so she signs off in this letter and comes back to discover her office and classroom have been vandalized by these same students who are claiming because they didn't like that she apologized because you're not allowed to apologize to people that they have deemed, you know, canceled, a non-person, unworthy of any attention or respect. That's what they did. They vandalized her room, her, her uh, office and her, um, her classroom because 
they didn't, they thought it was outrageous that she had uh, defended this professor. You know, I, I do have, I, I call this big segment uh, drowning in lies, pretends, and wokeness. I mean, this whole you know, transgender thing is wokeness thing that you actually refer to someone who is deciding he or she wants to switch genders, and there are only two, but you want to switch genders, and you know, instead of saying, well, we have legal provision for that once you're an adult or debating the issues, they just, you know, they go from zero to outraged overnight, instantaneously, if anyone violates the, it's like a religion of transgenderism. And, and a similar note, um, I could tell more about the Stanford thing, but on a similar note, just how crazy things have gotten. And the reason I'm doing this, by the way, I'm doing this whole segment because I really want to urge people in the situations that come up in your life, or the situations you're aware of, or your family is, be the one who speaks up. Be the one who says, you know, that's crazy. This is wrong. I mean, leaving aside, you know, Bruce Jenner, who now wants to be Caitlyn Jenner, is Caitlyn Jenner. You know, when you're an adult and, and you're doing, you're making a choice on your own, but this whole moral superiority uh, attitude that comes from people who believe in transgenderism, who push it, who advocate it starting in kindergarten, if they can get away with it, they have uh, assumed an attitude of just uh, denouncement of anyone who won't agree with them. And this, the only way back, the only fight back, is it's a major pushback in the culture everywhere you are over and over. I'll tell you one quick one. So in Michigan, the Michigan Supreme Court is considering forcing judges to use preferred pronouns for attorneys and litigants. So some people who are doing this transition thing, they want to be called instead of she or her or he or him, they want to be called they or them. So you're referring to one person and instead of saying, are you or is she going to file this pleading? They're referring to one person They say, are they going to file? I mean, it is just playing games with language, utter silliness, but, but, you know, beneath it, it's, it's not just language. The reason this is bothersome and that I hope that the, the uh, lawyers uh, and I hope the Supreme Court in Michigan does not put this rule in place and I hope the judges and lawyers speak up and say we're not doing this um, is that it's deeper than just which word you use. They are trying to impress people with the idea that they decide what truth is and you have no right to dispute them. It's not just what word came out of your mouth, did you say they or her? It is, we have decided what transgender truth is, and we have decided what everyone must think, and no one can even say words that we don't agree with. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tyrannical mindset, it's a censoring mindset, and there's nothing healthy, nothing good about humoring it. Another of this ongoing, just endless, um, you know, endless litany, we're living in lies, pretends, and wokeness, um, has to do with the whole um, uh, drag queen thing. I'll just say very quickly about this. Again, just like the transgendering thing, transgenderism for most of human history until the last 10 years was viewed as something, there were a few people who talked about this. A lot of times, even young people would go through a phase, you know, children saying, I wish a, a girl wishing she were a boy, vice versa. And lots of psychiatrists and psychologists would tell you, it'll go away by the time they're late in their teens, when they're through adolescence. It's a phase. Now we indulge these phases and confusion and, and imprint it with the argument that it is reality. It is real. 
and much to the harm of many children and young adults who now regret the whole transgendering thing. Well, it's a similar thing with the drag queen shows. Everyone knew for decades, everyone knew for decades that the, transgen that the uh, drag queen shows existed. That some men, and that's what they are, men want to dress up as women and you know prance around the stage and sing whatever they do. I don't know, never went to one. But we knew this existed, but what's changed is the mindset and this cultural Marxism idea, the mindset of that is being pushed on America by the left and by their just the LGBTQ and the, the propaganda media that supports them that says not only is this a perfectly normal thing to do for a man to dress as a woman and prance around and be a drag queen, but that this is healthy entertainment for children that you should have as role models for children. You should have these people prancing around on stage and bring children to watch them, bring children who are then encouraged to imitate them. I mean, this was never, never normal. And it's not normal now. It's not normal, it's not reasonable. And yet where we are, the same place we are on many other issues is you're not even allowed to challenge the idea of drag queen shows, even when they are uh, being done you know, for adults, let alone for children. So here's where we are right now. So in the, um, one of the New York City boroughs, I don't know which one it was, but one of the New, uh, New York City boroughs, um, there was a council panel. Uh, there was a woman in Queens, Queens City Councilwoman, Vicki Palladino. She's Republican, and she is on the Queens uh, City Council. She's been booted, physically, uh, forcibly removed from the Chamber's Mental Health Committee as punishment for her strident opposition for Drag Queen Story Hour for Children. The advocacy of sexual confusion and bizarreness and lunacy has become so mainstreamed and normalized that a woman who sits on the city council in Queens and agreed to serve in the mental health committee is removed because she's opposed to drag queen story hours for small children. I mean, she should be the one getting a prize, getting a commendation at the end of the year. Thank you for standing up for children and not perverting their little minds. But no, she's kicked off the mental health committee. I, I mean, the normalizing of everything that is not normal is not good for society. You can be tolerant. You can decide, I don't mock people. And if adults want to engage in transgendering or adults want to engage in drag queen with other adults, you know, that's their life. It's a free country. But we are at the point where you lose a position. In a, and, and there are tons of stories like this. You can't even say anything about drag queens, especially drag queens around children. You can't even talk about that or else you are intolerant, all the words that they always come up with. But we live in these lies and the only way to push back is to speak truth. The only way is to, to fight back and say, no, we're gonna reclaim America, reclaim American families, reclaim normalcy. It is not normal that grown men wanna dress as women and prance around on stage and dance. They can do it, it's a free country, but we don't view that as entertainment for children and we're not gonna humor it. Not, not going to humor is not normal, is not healthy. Uh, similar other ones where we just, we get so focused on the DEI thing, my last little segment on this, on this part of the show, talking about living under lies, pretends, and wokeness, I called this segment uh, U.S. Drowning in Lies, uh, Pretends, and Wokeness. We, we live in these pretend crazies. A uh, quick thing, probably a lot of you saw it, Tucker Carlson had a segment on where he had a pilot, either from United or America, I think United Airlines, 
who is speaking, you know, with anonymity, you know, he has voice altered and, you know, face covers, so you don't know who it is. But he's talking about the fact even the airlines in hiring pilots have gone to the preference for and stressing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which means, you know, you have every, you know, instead of looking at merit, qualifications, skills, intelligence, and ability, the only factors that should matter, the only factors that should matter when you're hiring pilots are skills, education, capacity, proven ability to do the job, that you now have United focusing on making sure we have enough DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which in the Tucker Carlson segment, he's talking about, the pilot's talking about, how they have had more and more near misses, mistakes made by pilots, poor decisions made because they get hired under DEI instead of merit. I am not saying that anyone of any race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, either gender, I'm not saying any people are disqualified from being pilots because of their race, ethnicity, national origin. I'm saying the only thing that matters is merit. The only thing. Same thing, you know, when you think about you're the one getting on the plane, do you want a pilot who passed the diversity test, didn't do too great on the landing and takeoff test as pilot skills, but hey, they really have the diversity thing nailed. I, I mean, it's so crazy. And the same thing is true, I'll tell you, I have a really good friend um, who is a doctor and he's, um, he's still practicing, he's got a big practice, he's black, he's conservative, and he's a doctor. He called me a couple months ago to say, why don't you ever talk about it on your show? And what he's asking, talk, talking about is medical schools, medical, medical schools now pushing DEI in their acceptance of students from medical school and pushing it in the curricula. So instead of learning precisely how to accomplish brain surgery, we're gonna have one more class talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he's saying, this is a very accomplished man, a very accomplished doctor who said, I don't know how we're going to survive this. I don't know how. When doctors leaving medical school got there because of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and they don't learn what they should learn, and they graduate law school, uh, medical school because they end up you know, getting really good grades in equity classes, what does that mean for the quality of practice of medicine in America? I mean, these are, I, this whole concept of living under the left, it's like this mass mesmerism, mass psychosis of society that we're so confused and, and guilted into focusing on DEI and focusing on woke ideas that we don't pay attention to reality and to merit. Uh, another just astonishing example, so there's a nuclear base, like a very, very serious place where we store, um, uh, store our um, nuclear supplies. Um, this is um, Minot, I'm not sure if you pronounce this, M-I-N-O-T, Minot Air Force Base. Um, but anyway, it is, uh, contains two legs of the nuclear triad, and they, it's at uh, Jimmy Doolittle Center, and this, um, this Air Force was, um, place, Air Force um, location, um, has, you know, nuclear stuff there, nuclear fuel, nuclear weapons, nuclear capacity um, fighting, and so, uh, fighting machines. And so they had, they have at this Air, this, uh, Air Force location, uh, Diversity Day. Diversity Day, so they celebrate, you know, uh, different cultures, diversities, religion, disabilities, blah, blah, here at Minot Air Force Base. And so, they had a chain of difficulties occurring because they were hiring people, again, based on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not 
about your capacity to perform your job at this military base, at this Air Force base that, har that, really, that actually has, harbors nuclear weapons. And so they recently had a time when the base failed nuclear inspections. <laughs> you might fail an inspection, you know, in the military and boot camp and you failed the inspection, you didn't make your bed right, or you know, you, you can have a lot of mess ups and not do things right. But this, this base failed their nuclear inspections and it's being tied to the fact that they're so focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion that they don't focus on the things that are needed to keep our this Air Force base, Air Force military base, in top-notch condition. Okay, and I could redo quotes, but I want to get other stories. Quotes out of this institution, and you would just accountable, sustained diversity effort. Uh, you know, the, the one of the senior people there quotes uh, Obama: "Our nation derives its strength from the diversity of its population. Uh, implementation of the Air Force diversity policy is responsibility of everyone." Um, anyway, it just goes on. You, you could cry and scream. And these are things that are really, really serious. I always talk about you know brain surgery. I would rather have a brain surgeon who doesn't look anything like me, who doesn't have any of the traits I have, doesn't share my race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, religion, anything else. I want competence. If I had to have a brain surgeon, God forbid, I want one who has merit, whatever their skin color is. And that should be the standard for most things in American life. We've gotten to this point that this crazy of the left has taken over so much of the way our society functions. And we, we exalt diversity, equity, inclusion over merit, over capacity to perform the job. And it matters. It matters for medical school and brain surgeons. It matters for all of the doctors going through medical school. It matters in the military. It matters in life. You want people hired on and promoted on and graduated on actual merit and performance. I'm all in favor of helping people. Heaven knows there's a wide array of public schools in this country, and some people don't get a fair start in the education that they start with. But the answer is not to make anyone who is less than top notch, less than qualified, don't put those people in positions that they can actually harm the American people, harm their own business, harm America. I mean, it's just a crazy level. And part of it is we've let this diversity, equity, inclusion thing be elevated. In fact, oh, that was the last thing I can tell you. So some lady, uh, I shall tell you who this was, um, there was, our, this is the state of Oklahoma and their legislature, Democrat State uh, Representative Regina Goodwin um, was outraged because there was a bill that was called the Education Transparency Bill, so parents were, should be able to see what their kids are learning in school. It was this idea that you know your parents need to know what the kids are learning; they have every right to know what they're learning. She did not agree. She does not think parents have any right. You know, she said, "Leave the schools alone. It's not the parents' business." Essentially, that wasn't her language. The language she did say, she ended up saying about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the most important thing. She wants those things taught. She ended up saying, "DEI is a deity." as in a god. And then she actually said, diversity, equity, and inclusion is God. Now, I will tell you folks, God is the creator of all life, the creator of men and women. He's a source of all life. We are, every single one of us are the image and likeness of God. 
and every single one of us is entitled to live in a world that doesn't discriminate against us based on race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, or anything else. We're entitled to that. That's what America is. But we don't elevate DEI as God, and we don't elevate it to the point to exceed the importance of merit. Okay, I guess a whole bunch of other stories. Um, and so I want to do a quick thing before we um, get to the last story. I called this a treacher. I called it, um, okay, now I have two stories and I only have time for one more. And this is, this is my sad situation. I can either tell you about January 6th and this uniparty treachery unmasked. That was one story I was going to do. I also want to tell you about Pence and DeSantis. And um, what they're doing is kind of interesting, um, what, what's going on with them. Well, I, I'll quick tell you the January 6th thing. So we've been talking January 6, uh, 2021, how it's been great because recently we've seen the public has, those interested, have been able to see the videos that were made from Capitol Hill that day um, and have, because Tucker Carlson's been releasing them. And so many, many people's understanding of what actually happened on January 6 has changed. Many people's understanding has changed. Uh, there was a... Um, another piece of it came out. This was on a website called Conservative Treehouse. And I actually urge you to go read this article yourself. I'm going to quickly summarize it and tell you what the point of it is this article, because it's a really interesting point. Leaving aside everything else we've learned about January 6th, about how there were really were uh, you know, many peaceful people entering, how we had FBI undercover in the middle of things, how it was now at all, not at all clear that any Trump supporter broke any windows, that the, the entire protest was invaded. By, uh, by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, people trying to dress up and look like Trump people. So, but this, this thing is, um, it's a different aspect of that. And I want to just briefly explain it to you, but I, I, I linked it on our website. So at Conservative Treehouse, it's called the Parliamentary, the Parliamentary Motive Behind the J6 Fed's Direction. And the quick story is this. So on the fateful day of January 6, 2021. And the goal was, obviously, the Constitution says that after the election happens and the state certify results and it goes to the Electoral College, Electoral College does a vote, and then it goes to Congress. What was supposed to happen in Congress on January 6 was that there was to be an affirmation by the House and Senate members. It's a joint meeting of the House and Senate presided over by the president of the Senate, who is the same person as the vice president. So that's why Pence was in charge. Pence is in charge of the whole thing January 6th. So he is uh, in charge of, the, of this process. And um, so the issue that day was many states by then had realized that they believed that their election had been rigged. Many states were concerned that there had, they had extremely obvious evidence of election fraud in their states. They were trying to tell Congress, you know, send back, now that we know we've uncovered this fraud, send back the, the, our state's vote. Send it back to us and let us look at it again because we think there may have been fraud. So they were challenging what they had originally certified and sent to the Electoral College it went to Congress. Now, there's an honest debate in Congress. Some people said Congress has no authority whatsoever to do anything uh, except rubber stamp the Electoral College uh, vote. And so that was giving it the election to Biden. And other people said, no, the Constitution has this process in there for a reason. It's in there to allow the uh, members of Congress to review what's happened. And it was a unique situation because that's the first time I know of when so many states, there was an outcome-changing issue occurring, an outcome-changing issue where enough states were concerned about their, that, their election um, and they want it sent back to them. So that's the backdrop just to say. So there, you know, Trump gives a speech at the Ellipse. 
people walk across town. You know, the Capitol, is, the, 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 uh, Capitol has the U.S. House and Senate together in session doing the January 6th uh, decision they have to make. You know, the, whatever it is related to certification of the Electoral College. And what this guy, this new article is pointing out, and I'm going to plant a seed and let you read it and see what you think. But the point he's, the guy is making is the timing of everything was really suspect because what happened that day, the, the you know, House and Senate is all set to meet. Numerous people are ready to file their motions to say, I think we need to reconsider the state of whatever it is, Arizona. And so they were, these members of the House or Senate, that convinced that there was a problem. They wanted to urge that they send this back to the states. And... Uh, but those motions did not yet, had not yet been filed. So they're just still doing their meeting thing, parliamentary order. And then the, the interruption came from the uh, official at the Capitol saying, hey, we have a real problem. We've had a breach of the Capitol. Everybody out of here. So the four leaders of the, uh, you know, the, consider the four leaders are removed from this meeting. All the other people are also removed. Uh, they leave the uh, chamber where, they're, where they've been having their meeting. Um, and then, you know, the, the Capitol protest happens on January 6th. So when they later reconvened the same meeting, House and Senate people reconvene, and they're, and they're back to have their meeting. It's evening by then, and the parliamentary rules apparently say at that point that uh, the, the, the uh, committee, the, the House and Senate together, they're going to make this certification related to the election. Uh, there are no motions on the table because the motions others wanted to file before the disruption never got filed. So the slate is clean. They have the meeting. And apparently parliamentary rules say, okay, at this point, we don't have to entertain any motions. No one gets to make a motion. We're just going to go to the vote up or down, certify electoral college. And that's what happened. That's what they did. This guy is making the point that the timing was extremely convenient where the uh, disruption of the meeting allowed the uh, occurred when there were no there was no possibility for the people in the House or Senate who are willing to entertain possible um, sending things back to the states. They never had the chance to put their motion on the table because of the disruption. And they're just saying and this guy's saying pretty, pretty conveniently timed so that by the end of it all, when they come back, no one essentially the parliamentary process forced the outcome that nobody had the opportunity to make any um, any objections at all, and the House and the Senate certified the election. And he's saying pretty darn convenient, especially when you keep in mind that Nancy Pelosi rejected what, what Donald Trump sent over to her and asked her to do, which was to have more troops at the Capitol. He, I mean, he, everyone knew how upset the uh, Trump supporters were, and you know, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't help, wouldn't send over the troops, uh, and that's where we ended up. So this guy's saying this is probably another, this is another arguably completely manipulated move on the part of the people um, who are just going to certify this election and we're simply not going to allow uh, those people who had objection to have their objections heard. Okay, friends, I'm a little long on this and I got to skip my last and we have to do it next week now. I wanted to talk about um, Pence and DeSantis, but I ran out of time. So uh, that will have to wait for next week. We are at the close of our show. Um, I close the show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show talking about San Francisco. San Francisco Board of Supervisors apparently seriously considering reparations for black residents, $5 million per person, 
guaranteed minimum annual income of $97,000 per person for 250 years. Maybe they live longer out there. Homes in San Francisco for $1. That's $1. No discussion of how to pay for this. San Francisco never had slaves or slave owners. This is mindless fantasizing and virtue signaling with other people's money, which makes a representative government into a farce of unseriousness. And worse, it is built upon a racist view that black Americans do not have the ability or opportunity to succeed in America. San Francisco is becoming a hellhole. Gavin Newsom is delusional to believe America wants SF California nonsense. And on the U.S. drowning in lies, pretends, and wokeness, America is pretending and lying itself into oblivion. Military-aged men flood southern border. This is an invasion. Biden says the border's secure. Don't worry. Repel it and stop it. Med school applications. Who wants future doctors determined by their sexual preferences? Stanford Law and the trans prisoner. Intelligent question mark, students boo a judge who won't humor a sex offender who changes genders and wants the system to call him a her. And this is worthy of outrage. Trans and drag queens and pronouns indulging moral idiocy as education and entertainment. Airline pilot, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, feels safe with a pilot chosen for wokeness instead of flight competence. Nuclear facility goes DEI woke. We're going to trust nuclear energy to the woke. DEI is God. America is about honoring individual identity and sovereign identity, not groups. Lying, pretending, and wokeness are the tools for imposing cultural Marxism on the unwary. Awake Americans cannot be fooled. We must stand up and reject all of this. And on J6, more uniparty treachery unmasked. Read the parliamentary motive behind the January 6th, the J6 Fedsurrection. Was January 6th a created crisis that enabled parliamentary maneuvering by Nancy Pelosi to sideline anticipated objections to election certification and thereby cement the steel of the 2020 election? Legacy media has not rebutted any of the fact-finding that backs up this story. J6 videos already released by Tucker Carlson are validating and converging with this story. Antifa imposters appear to be the perpetrators of the January 6th violence and property destruction. FBI informants and agents at the root of crowd movements and opening of Capitol doors. When a critical mass of Americans are awake to the staged J6 Fedsurrection, the fury may be difficult for the deep state to control. We gotta skip our last slide because I didn't get to the story. But I do want to remind you tomorrow, Thursday, our guest on this show, here's the book that he wrote. Our guest tomorrow is named Garrett Ziegler. And he wrote this book, Report on the Biden Laptop. He formed, he formed Marco Polo USA, the name of his group. Um, they uh, put together not just what's in the Hunter Biden Laptop, but organized it by topics, uh, proving many felonies are spelled out in that uh, laptop. So it's a great show tomorrow. Tune in at 3 p.m. tomorrow and every day, Monday through Thursday, to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?